Um, Josh Vibert is going to bring the word to us today. Please welcome him. Thank you. That's better. That's more than you welcome me. That's all right. I'm a little hurt by that. Just kidding. You know, I mean, you get it all the time, right? So got to make the guests feel welcome or they won't come back. Good morning, everybody. How y'all doing? All right. It's good to see you guys here, people that are online. Uh, I am excited because I think if I did the math right, this is week five of Lent. That means it's almost over. <laughs> um, we're going to take kind of a different, a different tack, a different approach to this this morning. It's actually something that came out of one of our small group discussions from a couple weeks back. Um, one of the guys in our small group kind of tossed this idea out there, and I said, you know what, that's great. You should preach on that, and, and he wasn't willing, so I figured I'd, I'd try, to try my best to do that and deliver the message, but it, I think it's going to be a neat, a neat thing. Let's open with some scripture, and we'll pray, and then we'll dive in. Um, this is Leviticus 25, 1 through 12. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a, sa- a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. And you shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you. And for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that in the time of your seven weeks of years, you shall give, shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants, and it shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property, and each of you return to his clan, that fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to gather together in your house, to worship you, to exalt you, and to lift your name up. Lord, I ask that you speak to our hearts this morning, Lord. That you work through my weakness to let your will and your word be made known. That you show us the reality of who you are. And let it change us and conform us more into your image, God. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So we've been going through Lent. And, and kind of the idea of Lent, as it's historically, traditionally been laid out, is this, this very solemn picture of repentance. Right? And in some denominations, they, they put ash on their forehead, right? And it's a symbol of this kind of sackcloth and ashes, right? To making ourselves low, making ourselves base. And with that, over the years, kind of due to the nature of man injecting our own feelings in it, it's kind of gotten this aura of like shame wrapped around it. And this aura of, you know, maybe, maybe we've got to go try to make ourselves holy by making us clothed in ashes or or maybe even like doing things, putting ourselves in uncomfortable clothing or whatever for the sake of somehow that purifying us. And isn't it so, so common among us, right? We take something that God said, hey, do this as a symbol of remembrance. 
And we take the symbol of remembrance of the thing and we make that the thing instead. So over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how to kind of break out of that idea, right? That the fact is that Lent and this idea of repentance is really the first step on the road to new life. That it's a time of rejoicing. It's a time of rebirth. And really it's well set in our calendar that it happens in spring. It happens at a time when flowers are blooming and, and new buds and new leaves are coming off of the trees and you're seeing new life begin to happen everywhere, coming out of this winter, this, this dead, this cold season, and new life coming forth. That embodies what repentance does for us in our hearts and in our lives. So the, the, the next thing that we want to get into is jubilee. And how does jubilee tie into repentance? You know, if you know, ju- the, kind of the, the jubilee comes out of Leviticus, which is the book of the law in the Old Testament, when God's setting up the nation of Israel. And he says, you're going to be my people called by my name. You're a nation. And, and there's some part of that that's prescriptive behavior for all Christians. And there's some part of that that's prescriptive behavior just for uh, a nation governed under laws by God, right? And God's laying out this thing of, of jubilee. And you can look at it from, well, the law says this, and uh, we're going to give back land, we're going to free servants, we're going to do all these things. And you could stop there and say, well, it's just, you know, it's it's describing the law. It's the same as us reading our Bill of Rights or our Constitution. But I think that if we take a deeper dive and look at it a little bit differently, we see that God is revealing his heart for people. God is revealing his nature, and really what he intended for things to be. He didn't intend for us to enter into things where we put ourselves under burdens and do that until. God is all about redemption. God is all about a path of escape. He's all about an opportunity to set people free, an opportunity to say, you know what? I did mess up. I, I did you know, manage my money poorly, and now I'm in debt. Or, and, and maybe in that time to the point where and I have sold my family into slavery because of this debt that I owe. And God says, yeah, I got it. But guess what? Every 50 years, no matter what, no matter how long you sold it for, that's it. You're done. Time's up. There is a way out. And I think that we can rejoice in that. And it really kind of ties back in with this idea of Lent, this idea of repentance, this idea that there is hope, there is future, there is new life. I think God built in Jubilee as a reset button, right? These people go down their lives, they, they, they plant the field, you know, the field gets sold. Uh, now, the, now the field is worth this much and, and somebody's generating revenue off of it or you got in debt, you sold yourself into slavery. And God goes, there's got to be a way to push the reset button and get out of that. He calls it a solemn rest and a Sabbath every seventh year. So every seven years, people are going to rest from sowing and reaping. Every seventh year. And isn't it funny how God builds, builds all that in, right? He, on, on the seventh day of the week, he says, rest, you need a Sabbath. And after six years, still having a rest day every seventh day, he goes, you need a whole year of rest. You need a whole year of not sowing and reaping. And I don't think that, I know that there's a physical part of it, but I think that really God is after a mindset shift in us that says, get out of this idea that go and do, go and do, go and do. And take a step back for just a second. Take a year off 
and reflect on who I am and what I'm done for you. In the Old Testament, they didn't have the Messiah yet. But even then, they had the promises. They had the parting of the Red Sea. They had the promises to Abraham. They had all these things that expressed God's faithfulness. Not only did the people rest, but the ground rests, right? The ground rests every seven years from sowing and reaping and sowing and reaping. You know, anybody take, go to school? Anybody ever go to school ever? No, nobody went to school. In school, they made a big deal. You know, at some point you study, you know, U.S. history through whatever year. And they talk about, you know, changing from cotton to tobacco to these different crops. And how that one of the crops is more kind of abusive to the soil than the other crop was. And so let's try to sow crops that let the ground rest for a bit. You know, God created things. He understands how the ground works. He understands biology even better than we do, right? About nutrients in the soil and feeding the crops. And he says, hey guys, you need to let that sit. You need to let that sit for a year and, and, and let it kind of go back to its natural state. Let those nutrients be replenished. And I think we could take that as some imagery for our lives. Anyone needing some extra nutrients in their life right now? Anyone feel like, man, I've been sowing and reaping and sowing and reaping and sowing and reaping and it'd be nice to just kind of get caught up, let my, let my heart get filled back up with some vitamins and minerals, right? Um, it prevents overuse and abuse. You know, we, if you plant something over and over and over and over and over again and you never sow back into it, well, you say, well, that's the ground. The ground doesn't have feelings. <laughs> but, but as people, you know, the imagery throughout the word of God is sow a seed, right? Sow a seed of mercy, sow a seed of compassion, sow a seed of uh, offering the gospel to somebody. And very often we can get to a place where we feel poured out of, right? Or we, feel, we say drained, say I'm drained or I'm burnt out. Where that comes from is a place where you've given and given and given and given and given to other people, and you don't feel like you are being poured back into. And that's not God's plan. God's, God says give, but the reason God can confidently say give is that he said, and I gave you the Sabbath wherein which you should be refilling yourself. So then this jubilee, <clears throat> every 50th year, so it's, it's like this kind of, kind of master reset button. So every 50th year, after we've had six years, every six years we have one off, right? Now every 50th year, it's kind of like a, a hard reset. It's like taking your hard drive on your computer and wiping it and reinstalling your operating system and saying, okay, there's no more viruses, there's no more bugs, there's no more any of this stuff, and, and it's going to run again the way I intended it to. Because we as humans can get entangled and entrapped with things. And very often we don't walk into, you know, if you see the briar thicket, you don't run headlong into the briar thicket. Most of us don't. Some people do. Some people are that way. But I want to see what's in there. But normally, we, we, it's, it's, it's a little thing here. You're walking and one little thing catches your sleep. And you're like, it's okay. I can keep going. And another little thing. And another little thing. And the next thing you look up and now you are fully entangled in briars. And, and you're striving and you're fighting your way through things. And God doesn't intend for it to be that way for you. But it's, it's, it happens little by little. And so God puts this reset button in for the, the, the nation of Israel. He says, you know what? If you got messed up with your money and you need to be free, every 50 years, bang, punch out. Clean slate. You're done. So 
Raise your hand in here if you could use a reset. I mean, especially after 2020, right? Especially after COVID, especially after all the stuff. But, you know, in your, in your job, in your marriage, in your relationships, you know, nobody, none of us stood up here and said, that looks like a briar patch. I'm just going to dive in. But it's all these little entanglements. And if you could just push a button and poof, let it go. How good would that be for your life? What medicine would that be for your soul? Well, there's good news. You can do that. And you're like, yeah, right. <laughs> After all, we've got to keep it all together. We've got to make it all happen, right? No one else is coming. No one else is going to take care of me except for me, you know. We've got to keep it going. Matter of fact, it's scriptural. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's in the Bible. So, if that's in the Bible, what are you talking about this reset? What are you talking about this year of Jubilee? I can't take a year off and not do anything. I got stuff to do, right? So, I agree. Work is good. Work is right. It's healthy. It's God-ordained. Here's where we get off. Here's, 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 Here's the problem. The issue comes when you trust your work Instead of trusting God. You reach a point where you say, I have to. Because if I don't, no one else will. And ultimately, there's an element of truth to that, right? If I stop going to work, and I just sit back and I say, God, I'm trusting you to pay my mortgage. I'm trusting you to land the groceries on my front door. Go out there and just just trusting God. You're going to say, Josh, they're going to repossess your house, dude. And you're going to starve. And your kids are going to not have clothes. Like that, it doesn't work that way, right? But there is a way that we can trust God and not trust ourselves and strive less and somehow do more. Because we're doing it in the grace of God. What does Jesus say about it? Matthew 6, 31 and 33. He says, therefore, do not be anxious saying, what do we eat? Or what do we drink? Or what are we going to wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We all know that scripture probably. A lot of us have heard that, and it's a good scripture. He said that that's good, you know, and that was good for the disciples following Jesus around, you know, in his little three or four year hippie venture. And then Jesus got crucified and went to heaven. And so he didn't have to worry about the next 40 years of feeding his family. That's not me. But I think it can, we can take that message and we can tie it back into the great thing about Leviticus. You know, a lot of people don't like Leviticus because they're like, it's legalism. It's the law. It's the man trying to tell me how to live. <laughs> but God, God lays it out as a framework for life, for success. He says, this is the way things work in the world. And so if you do these things, it will go well with you. And so in Leviticus 25, 20 through 22, God says to Moses, And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year that we may not sow or gather in our crop? God says, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. And you shall eat the old until the ninth year when the new crop arrives. Now here's the problem. You've got to trust that. And this is where we get off the rails. We trust God. God says sow and reap. And we go, okay, plant the seed, water the seed, see the thing come up. Oh, that works. Imagine that. God was right. 
So, if we plant and water and sow and eat, plant and water and sow and eat, and over and over and over again. And God says, okay, now I want you to trust me a little bit more. I want you to not sow and reap for a year and see if I'll still feed you. And we go, man, I don't know. I mean, you know, taking little dried up seed, putting the dirt and water and growing and eating the fruit. I've seen that happen. I can believe that. But I don't know, God, if I trust you to take a year off of planting and watering and sowing and reaping and that there's still going to be food there. And this is, this is how we get off the rails in our lives. God says, trust me. Trust and obey. Take a Sabbath once a week. And we go, well, I know you said take a Sabbath once a week, God, but you see, I got all this stuff to do. And I know that if, if I don't do the stuff, it's not going to get done. And so I'll agree with most of the rest of your plan, God. I'll try to uphold the Ten Commandments and I'll go to church. And heck, I'll even go to small group. But I don't know if I trust you enough to supernaturally cause things to happen on my behalf in my life if I don't have my hand in the middle of it. So last week, Chris talks about sin. He talks about original sin in the garden. And he kind of talked about how sin is based in pride, right? So God says, let's just break this down to like two sentences. God says... See the tree? Don't eat of that tree. Right? That simple. And Eve looks at it and goes, you know what? Looks okay to me. I mean, it's not like, you know, you, th- you expect, and Disney's great at this, right? You know, if you, go, if you go to Snow White, right? And Snow White and the witch brings the apple, and, and the ab- poison apple's got like the, the green ooze and the face of death on it. You're like, I wouldn't eat that apple. Well, the tree in the garden doesn't have green ooze in the face of death on the fruit of it. The, the scripture says she looked at it and saw that it was good for food. So she looks at it she goes, that's all right for me. She said, matter of fact, looks good for food. So she takes and she eats. And how simple is that, right? You had an entire garden of, of options and varieties. And then you're going to have the one that God said don't touch. But that's exactly what we do, Right? God says, love your neighbor as yourself. You're like, well, if he's nice to me, I can love him as myself. But if he cuts me off in traffic, I don't know that I can love him myself. Or like, what if, what if I have different political views? I don't know if I can love him as myself. I mean, he's wrong. He believes that things that are contrary to the word of God are okay. Shouldn't we like stone him or something? Mm. There was a cow right there, and we just kicked it over, a little sacred cow. <laughs> so here's, here's what we do, though. We make our own plans. And a lot of times, these plans are inspired by God. Have you ever seen a movie? And the movie, like Lord of the Rings, you write, it says, inspired by the series by J.R.R. Tolkien, Right? Or you see, and it's inspired or based on this, right? So we make these plans that are inspired by God, right? So God says, love your neighbor as yourself. And you say, okay, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to love the people in my church as myself because they're my neighbors. But if I go outside the church, they're not my neighbors. I don't have to love them as myself. But I'm loving the people in the church as I love myself. It's based, it's inspired by God. It's, it's based on a true story by God, right? 
Now, here's the thing about these movies that are like inspired by the novel so-and-so. You might, you know, you, you, you see the movie and you say to someone, you're like, hey, man, did you see the new uh, Lord of the Rings movie? I thought it was pretty good. And the guy goes, no, bro. Yeah. Have you read the book? Because <laughs> if you read the book, you know that they got this, 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 and this wrong. I mean, it was way, the book is way better. The book's way better than the movie. And I can only imagine that there's a part of God looking at our plans inspired by the word of God. Going, dude, the book is way better. (laughs) Clearly, you've not read the book. Because if you had, you would have known that love your neighbor as yourself doesn't just mean in the four walls of the church. And it doesn't just mean people who call themselves Christians. It doesn't mean people who look like you and act like you and think like you. It means everyone. And loving someone doesn't mean, if, if, if you love someone, that doesn't mean you have to go to the strip club with them. If you love someone, that doesn't mean you have to practice and participate in their sin with them. You can love people and not participate in the things that you don't agree with. But it certainly does not give you the position to say, you're wrong, you're a sinner, and you're going to hell because you do something I disagree with. And how often we take that position. And that's our, that's our plan based on A novel written by God. Here's the other thing we do. We get it in our heads that somehow we're supposed to read God's plan. We're supposed to fully absorb it. We're supposed to listen to all the good podcasts about it. And now we've got it in ourselves, right? Now now we're becoming a mature Christian. You know, Paul said, I wish that by now you'd been mature Christians and I could feed you with the meat of the word and not the milk as babes, right? And so we take that and we're like, I'm going to, you know, listen to the sermons and read the book and take the podcast and all the stuff. And now I'm a mature Christian. And then in our brains we go, now that I am mature, I have the word of God in me and I no longer need to rely on God. Until it's, until it's a big thing. A big thing. Maybe we'll go back to God about it. But a little thing, we've been doing this for a while. We got this, right? We understand how this is supposed to look. And that's called self-reliance. God knows about this tendency in us. He knows that we have a tendency to take his plan and go, okay, God, you you said this. And all right, we got it. We believe you. We're going to do it. Here we go. And leave God back there. (laughs) And we're out here in the wilderness trying to use God's, apply God's strategies to our situation instead of going, okay, God, I'm going from here to there. All right, one step. Where are we at, God? Is this where we need to be? Are we still going the right direction? Okay, what's the next step? Right here? Okay. Next step. Okay, took the next step, God. Here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm looking at. What do I need to be? And it's somehow our pride tells us that if we're doing that, we're bothering God or we're less than mature Christians if we're checking with God. But the scripture says about Jesus that he only ever did what he saw the Father do. And he only ever said what he heard the Father speak. So if that's Jesus, God incarnate in the flesh, fully God and fully man, who are we to think that somehow we, through studying scripture for a couple years, are going to, oh man, I got that. I got that. I know, I know what God wants. You kidding me? This is the will of God. Let's do it. And we just we trek off into this path and we leave God in the dust. And that's how you get stuff like Moses 
who's had all these promises done. He's seen all these miracles, right? God has worked mightily through Moses. Everybody agree with that? And what does he do? He gets mad and hits the rock the second time when God says, speak to the rock. He said, well, God, last time you said hit the rock and the water came out, I just did what you told me. God said, I told you to do it differently this time. Was that sin? You know, is it written like the 12th commandment, thou shalt not strike the rock, but thou shalt only speaketh to the rock, and the rocketh shall bringeth forth water unto thee. No, it's never written anywhere. The point is, ultimately Moses broke communion with God. He had tight communion with God. He was on Sinai. I mean, he saw as much of the glory of God as you can see on this earth. God said, you can't see my face, but you can see my, my back. Because if you saw my face, it would kill you. So he begs God to see his glory. And God shows Moses the backside, which is still overwhelming. Dude's face is glowing for like a week coming down off the mountain. He's got to put a, a sheet over his face. The people won't look at him. And in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of leading God's people out, in the midst of obeying God, instead of stopping at this step and going, okay, God, we need water. What is it we need to do to get water for these people? He goes, you know what, you people, and hits the rock. And guess what? God's faithful. Water came out of the rock again. Water, water came out of the rock when Moses hit it the second time, even though he disobeyed God. But what was the consequence of it? The consequence was he was no longer able to enter the promised land. He was no longer able to get to the end of the journey that God had called him for. God calls us to things. Each and every one of you, God says, this is my best for you. Jeremiah 29, 11, right? Behold, I know the plans and purposes I have for you. Plans to prosper and not to harm. And God, from the moment you were formed in your mother's womb, sets this up and he goes, this is for you. And we don't take hold of it because somewhere along the way we decided we knew better than God. And maybe it wasn't even sin. But we did something without consulting God and it got us off track. There's good news. The good news is the way we fix that is called repentance. The way we fix that is, is kind of hitting this jubilee reset button that God knew that his creation was going to need. I mean, really, if you want to back it up big picture, Eve took the fruit. Original sin came into the earth. Mankind is cursed and doomed henceforth, right? And Jesus, the Messiah, is the jubilee for all of mankind. Jesus says it himself. He begins his ministry with the promise of jubilee. Luke 4, 16 through 21. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives a recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled the scroll up and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he said to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus himself is the fulfillment. He is the embodiment of jubilee for the, man, the race of man. 
Let's dive a little deeper into that Isaiah scripture because Jesus quotes verses one and two. I want to read the whole thing. And there are some things that are phrased differently in Isaiah than the way it's quoted in Luke. So the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins and they shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Guys, this is the picture of repentance. Yes, there's an element. There is a time when you humble yourself and and, and God calls you to a barren place. But even in that, the the essence of it, the, the, the end of it is not ashes and sackcloth. The end of it is new life. The picture that Isaiah paints of repentance is beauty for ashes. It's gladness for mourning. Praise for a faint spirit. Oaks of righteousness. He says, it says an oak of righteousness planted by the hand of the Lord. It's kind of like that, that image when Jesus looks at Simon Peter and he says, Peter, Satan has come and asked to sift you like sand. But I say to you, you are Peter, the rock on which I will build my church. A rock is a strong thing. It has a firm foundation. An oak tree is a firm thing. It doesn't say, I'm going to plant you like pine trees. <laughs> you ever, we got ice storms in Georgia, right? How did the pine trees do in the ice storms? How do they do in the wind storms? You know, you see the pine tree laying down, the big root ball up. God says, that's not y'all. You're oak trees that I've planted with my own hand. And God doesn't plant an oak tree like a squirrel plants. I know a squirrel digs like a half inch hole and plants a little acorn in there and no, God, God digs it deep and he plants it, according to the Psalms, by rivers of living waters. So our problem is we're too busy clinging to our own plans for success, for fulfillment, even sometimes just survival. Right? We get locked in this survival mode and we're like, I got, I got it. I can't stop. If I stop, it's all going to fall down. It's all going to fall apart. And ultimately, these plans lead us away from God because they are not God. We cling to them like they are, though. We worship the plan. We hold on to the thing that's killing us as though it is God, as though it is our salvation. No sermon at Riverstone would be complete without a reading from C.S. Lewis. (laughs) So I want to read you this passage from The Great Divorce. Because to me, it just completely, it gives clear imagery to this idea of what we do when we cling to things that are killing us. Forgive me while I fuddle with my book. So, the the background here, if you've never read the story, these people that are ghosts have the opportunity to kind of go to heaven and see what it's like. And a lot of them embrace it, and a lot of them, to them, like the grass is so hard, it's like stabbing their feet, and they can't even be there. 
So you see this picture, there's, there's, I don't know, 8, 10, 12, a bunch of different ghosts, and each one kind of presents a picture of a type of human that we see on this earth. So, yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap, and here he indicates this lizard that's on his shoulder, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do here. I realize that, but he won't stop. I shall just have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit, an angel, as I now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, ah, look out, you're burning me, keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? Well, you didn't say anything about killing him at first. I mean, I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It is the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it. But it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it. Because up here, well, it's, it's so embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that letter. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that now. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I think over what you've said very carefully. Honestly, I will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now. But as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be most silly to do it now. I'd need to be in good health for the operation. Some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All other days are present now. Get back, you're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It is not so. Why, you're hurting me now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know, you think I'm a coward. But isn't that really, that's really it, isn't it? I say, let me run back by tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor and I'll come back the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You're jeering at me. How can I let you tear me to pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you kill the thing without asking me before I knew? It would all have been over by now if you had. I cannot kill it against your will. It is impossible. Do I have your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost, even louder than and before, and what I could hear what it's saying. Be careful. He can do what he says. He'll kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. Then you'll be without me forever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd only be sort of a ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't they better than nothing? And, in, and I'll be so good. I admit, I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might say, quite innocent. Do I have your permission? Said the angel. I know it will kill me. It won't, but supposing it did. You're right, it would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then may I kill it. So the ghost ends up 
uttering a little bit of profanity that I'm not going to read here and says, by, by all means, fine, do it. And then starts screaming, oh God, help me. And the next moment, the earth gave a scream of agony such as I'd never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then flung it, broken-backed, dead on the turf. And I know it's kind of a long reading, but here's the deal. The things in our lives, our plans, our purposes, our besetting sins, things that in and of themselves are not sin, attach them to themselves to us like the lizard. And we say, God, take it from me. And God says, can I kill it? We're like, well, I don't know about killing it. I mean, you know, just, just make, make it more manageable for me, right? Let's, let's let it not have complete, you know, power over me. You know, just put it back under my control. And for it to work, for God to have his perfect work in us, we have to fully yield. We have to let him kill it. And it won't kill us. It might be painful. We might not enjoy it. But it won't kill us. And in effect, it will actually save us and bring us into new life. Sin whispers in our ears the same way the lizard whispers in the ghost's ear. And he tells us lies about God. The same way the serpent whispered in Eve's ear in the garden. So you shall not surely die. God knows that if you eat that fruit, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. And ultimately, it was death. God knows we need a rest. He needs, we need a reprieve, a reset button, a jubilee. Psalm 103, verses 10 through 14 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are but dust. Guys, we have a father in heaven. Jehovah God is his name. And he made you with a plan and a purpose for your life. A plan to prosper you and not to harm you. And it is we ourselves who take ourselves off of that path. And very often we don't do it out of a desire to do it. We do it because we look at something and we say, well, I know God said this, but I see a better way. Our pride takes over. We begin to do things we ought not to do and we rationalize it in our minds. And then it gets to the point where it has a hold of us. And the only way for it to be gone is for us to yield to God and allow him to kill it. Allow God to pronounce jubilee over our lives. Don't look at the field and say, but God, if I don't plant on the 50th year, and if I don't reap on the 50th year, I'm going to starve. And trust God when he says, on the 49th year, I'm going to give you three years worth of harvest. You see another picture of that kind of with manna, right? God tells people, don't go out and gather manna on the seventh day. It's a Sabbath. It won't be there. But trust also on days one through six, don't get extra. It'll go bad. Trust me, day to day, day to day. And what happens, right? Some people go out there and they get like two days worth because they don't trust God. And the next morning it's got maggots in it. 
And the problem is, our, our nature as humans is to go, oh God, look, he's feeding us with maggots. No, he fed you with bread from heaven. And because you disobeyed and you took it outside the parameters of what he laid forth, it has become maggots. It has become death and defilement to you. The good news is, there's a path of repentance. It's the blood of Jesus and it's life. The last point I want to make here is that we've got to be free from captivity. We've got to be free from captivity to our plans, to our desires, to our sins, to the things that aren't sin that we've put in God's place and therefore now they are sin. And you might say, I'm not in captivity. I'm as free as I can be. I make my own choices. I do whatever I want. So let me challenge you. Have you ever heard the word captivated? So the dictionary defines captivate as to attract and hold the interest of, to charm. And it gives the example of, he was captivated with her beauty. Sin is captivating. Eve was captivated by the fruit of the tree and the knowledge that it offered. Cain was captivated with his jealousy of his brother, causing him to be the first murderer. David was captivated by Bathsheba, and it turned, it turned him into an adulterer and a murderer. None of these people sat out, set out to sin. They were captivated by something that appeared good and beautiful, but they were put into captivity by that thing. Repentance is not a chore. It's not a punishment. It is the surrendering to God and allowing him to kill that which has you in captivity and ultimately will kill you, either in this age or in the age to come. Repentance is jubilee from your captivity to sin. Repent and be free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you for your blood poured out for us. We thank you for coming to this earth, being fully God and fully man, for living as an example to us. And we bring our lives before you now, God. We ask you to show us the things that are holding us in captivity, the things that started out as captivating, as beautiful, and that now have such control over us that they're killing us. God, may we have the boldness to yield those things to you. May we have the boldness to invite you in because you won't do it. You won't force your way on us. So give us the boldness to trust you, to invite you in. Holy Spirit, come and work in our hearts. Thank you for the hope of new life that we have through confessing our sin to you through being covered with your blood and walking in newness of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Chris is going to come and lead us through our time of communion.